This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. On this week's Money and Markets podcast, it's been another busy one with OPEC's shock cut to oil production, stoking fear that central bankers might have to do more to tackle inflation if the price keeps rising. Joining me to talk about that and the rest of what's been considerable market news this week is AJ Bell's head of investment analysis, Laith Kalav. Hi, Laith. Yeah, hi, Danny. And yes, fears of a global banking crisis might have receded, but there were plenty of angry words directed at Credit Suisse's chairman and CEO at the bank's last ever shareholder meeting held this week. Virgin Orbit's been put up for sale after January's failed rocket launch. Meanwhile, Cineworld is off the market after the struggling chain failed to find a buyer. Instead, it's looking to raise almost $2 billion from its lenders and investors. Yeah, and there seems to be plenty of M&A activity going on with the beauty giant L'Oreal buying the Australian brand Aesop, um, while at the same time Glencore's bid for the Canadian minor tech has been rejected. But the question is, is there a bit more cash in the kitty? Plus, Laura Souter's been chatting with Jasmine Yeo from Ruffer Investment Trust about what she's been buying recently and why the inflation story might have another chapter left in it. So uh, quite a lot to get through then, Danny. Let's start with oil, shall we? I think it's um, fair to say that OPEC's announcement took the market um, by surprise. What's, what's, what's the story there? Yeah, it did. Um, and it came outside of um, a regular meeting as well, which is uh, why it really did catch people on the hop. Um, there has been a sort of a lot of toing and froing with the US calling on um, oil producers to actually pump more oil to bring the price of a barrel of the black stuff down. But actually, OPEC has decided to cut production once again by about a million barrels a day, as I say, not at a scheduled meeting. And I don't think anyone was surprised that the oil price shot up by almost 5% almost immediately. Um, That, of course, then led to concerns that the higher oil price, if it stuck around, would further fuel inflation. I was taking a look back to the last time they cut production by 2 million barrels a day. That was back in October last year. And then the price at the pump in the UK shot up less than a week later. So I think motorists are sort of bracing themselves to see whether or not that happens. Now, OPEC says that its mission is to stabilise prices. And, you know, to be fair, the price of oil had been heading back down towards $70 a barrel. That was during the banking crisis. But in the last sort of few days, week or so, it had been back up to over $80 a barrel. That was before the production cut at the weekend. Now, They argue that volatility isn't good for investment, which is something that we hear from the stock market all the time. But there have also been warnings that some investors have been looking to short oil stocks. And so this was sort of a shot across the bows. Remember, of course, with the energy transition coming down the tracks, investing in fossil fuels has has rather demanded sort of higher returns because investors are looking for some kind of hedge. 
But the transition will take time and we will need oil and gas for at least the foreseeable future, if not even longer. And, you know, looking today, the oil price has steadied, hanging around the $85 a barrel mark. But it is politically tense because you've got a huge amount of pressure on Western leaders to get to grips with inflation. And of course, you know, politically and in terms of making cash, oil producers, they're just looking after themselves. So it is fascinating. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens with the price of a barrel oil. There's been lots of sort of speculation that we might, by the end of the year, be heading back up towards $100 a barrel. Yeah, and some obviously concern that that could fuel inflation just at a time when it's it's cooling off in lots of parts of the world as well. Yes, yeah, so we had um, inflation numbers from Europe um, down considerably. I think it was quite a shock. So the annual rate was down to 6.9% this month. So signs that the cost of living pressures are easing. We also had um, better than expected core numbers from the United States, all of which, of course, suggests that central bankers' fight is actually finally having some kind of fruition. And of course, it's that sustained fall in inflation, particularly the core sticky stuff, which is so important. And that is absolutely what central bankers will be looking to see, which is why I think this cut to oil production will be something that they'll be watching incredibly closely to see whether or not the barrel of oil does sort of stay at that $85 mark where it's hanging around at the moment or whether it begins to creep up. I think a lot of it will depend on what happens with uh, China's growth trajectory. Yeah, and as you say, that kind of creeping up of the, the oil price one to watch uh, and, and will also kind of cause sort of fears about what central banks are going to do um, in response. If if anything, I guess, I guess you're kind of... A starting point would be a higher oil price um, would mean uh, would mean higher rates, but um, you know it's not an entirely open and shut case because there's a lot of other moving moving parts um, you know going on at the moment. I think um, you know if you look as things stand at the moment in the UK, markets are basically pricing in one more one more rate rise uh, over the summer coming in May. Or June. I mean, it's possible that there's another one. That's what markets are saying, but actually, prob- prob- probably just one. Um, you know, I think it's 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 interesting to, to 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 look at what some of the central bankers are saying as well. Silvano Silvano Tenrero, who's one of the members of the Monetary Policy Committee, she gave a speech yesterday. Um, you know, talking about how the bank will need to cut rates sooner uh, and faster than expected. So, talking about cutting rates rather than raising rates. So. You know, she is she is one of the more dovish members of the Monetary Policy Committee. She's been voting for slower rate rises since um, since last November. But interesting to hear her say that. And that's kind of chiming with what's happening in the US as well, because in the US, in terms of interest rate policy, uh, we have seen markets, you know, kind of change change their view significantly about where interest rate policy is heading in the US. And that's almost certainly down to um, the ba- the banking crisis or the, the mini crisis, um, you know, prom- uh, precipitated by the, the collapse of SVB. Um, so, you know, the, the markets are, are looking at, at, at the US Fed. 
in the short term, they're thinking, actually, we may or may not have another interest rate rise. They're kind of evenly split on that matter. But what's quite interesting is what's happened to expectations later on this year. Uh, because at the moment, the way the market is seeing things, we're actually in for a series of interest rate cuts um, in the US later on this year, um, uh, taking us down to somewhere around 4.25%. And this stuff moves around all the time. But it's interesting to note that actually that's quite a significant change, it seems to me, from from, from, from where we've been before. Uh, and that's also that's also impacted the dollar on, on currency markets as well. The dollar's been falling as a result. And the pound has actually been doing quite well. Uh, for for a change, so the pound is now changing at one uh, trading at um, uh, one point two five dollars to the pound. Um, you know, just to give you some perspective, during the 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 money the mini budget chaos, it fell down to one point oh eight, and it's, you know it's been on the back foot ever since, really. Um, so you know that's that's good for our own inflation numbers because of, obviously we kind of buy a lot of stuff in dollars, not least you know petrol, which we've been talking about. Um, it's not so great for for investors. Uh, because a lot of them will own overseas funds, which have you know dollar exposures and other currencies, uh, and also the FTSE 100 has lots of um, you know overseas currency exposure, and that actually helped to boost uh, investment returns for, for investors last year. But now it's kind of the wind is starting to uh, to shift and blow in the other direction. So as ever with currency, investors do do need to take the rough with the smooth. But yeah, it feels like a little bit of a. A, a sort of a, sh- a shift in terms of interest rate <laughs> expectations and also currency markets as well. Yeah, an 11-month high for the pound, the best-performing leading currency so far this year. And uh, it's been interesting because business sentiment seems to have shifted as well. There was a survey um, out from the British Chambers of Commerce which said that just over um, half of their companies expected to grow over the next 12 months and just over a third had said that sales were up over the last three months. So there does certainly sort of seem to be an air of optimism among the business community that maybe wasn't there before. Although, of course, you know, we do know that a lot of businesses are now having to pay an awful lot more for their energy and small businesses in particular are really concerned about how that's going to impact their ability just to keep trading. Um, we've spoken just then about the banking crisis. Um, it, it, it's sort of still very much at the forefront of our minds, even if, you know, that, that nerves seem to have um, settled somewhat. And we do have to talk about Credit Suisse's last ever shareholder meeting because it was a doozy lay. Yeah, you could you could call it that, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, this um, this of course follows on from the merger with with UBS. That was all ushered through by the Swiss authorities uh, without shareholder approval, and they've been left sort of nursing uh, very large losses. So there's a five hour general meeting in Zurich, and I think it's fair to say, you know, that there was a lot of sound and, and fury from shareholders venting venting their frustration. There were protests outside. There was a police presence. You know, the chairman stood up and apologized to, to shareholders and, you know, said, you know, the bank really only faced two options. One was the merger and the other the, was bankruptcy. But that didn't really seem to assuage sort of shareholder anger at all. There was quite literally, Danny, some some nutty behavior, right? One shareholder <laughs> presented the chairman with a bag of walnut shells 
um, you know, re- basically saying this that's all that a Credit Suisse share is worth nowadays. So, you know, s- slightly strange symbolism. Uh, another, another shareholder stood up and suggested that, um, you know, in medieval times, the bank executives would have been crucified. Um, which okay. you know is 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 quite extreme. You know, it's wrong on on a number of levels, um, not least because as we as we all know, crucifixion was a popular punishment in antiquity, and actually in medieval times they'd moved on, so it'd be much more likely to be burnt at a stake in medieval times. So a little bit of a historical inaccuracy there from the shareholder in question. <laughs> but I think we could, fa- you know, it's, it's it's fair to say that. Uh, you know that you know emotions are running really hot. People are really angry about about this stuff, and I think m- much of it is to do with, um, you know the. You know, there's a lot of anger about the Credit Suisse board as well, but it's about the way this this, this has been done, and actually some anger directed, I think, at the, the Swiss authorities as well, who have kind of pushed this this merger through without any shareholder approval. Um, you know, done d- done it um, really quickly, and there's still legal questions over over the over the merger as well. So, you know, I don't expect this this story to to go quiet anytime soon. Never let it be said that we don't get value for money with you on this podcast. Like we've had, <laughs> you know, fantastic history lesson there, all sorts of blood and gore, which, uh, yeah, it is, is not the usual speed for the Money and Markets podcast. But <laughs> it, it, it is also worth mentioning that one banking boss isn't so sure that all the troubles are behind us. Yeah, so J- Jamie Dimon, um, who's the CEO of, of JP Morgan, um, has also um, been um, been writing to his shareholders. He's one of the big beasts of of Wall Street. So he's been CEO of JP Morgan since before the financial crisis steered them steered them through that. So um, you know he's um, for want of a better word got a lot of kudos in the industry. And and his his letters basically saying that he doesn't think the banking crisis is is over and that we're going to feel the ramifications of this. Uh, for years to come. Now he did say that it's nothing on the scale of 2008. He doesn't think um, so. You know that that is that is some some reassurance. But I think this perhaps also comes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, which is why interest rate expectations have come down um, so much. Because you know this kind of turmoil in the banking sector. You know if it if it's going to produce a kind of mini mini credit crunch where banks are not kind of quite as free and easy with lending into the economy. Um, then that actually does quite a good job of cooling the economy and cooling inflation. So that kind of takes the pressure off the central bank to do that, which I think is probably one of the reasons why why we have seen um, you know the the interest rate expectations scale back because the, the the central bank basically doesn't have to do doesn't have to raise rates as sharp as it did because the banking sector is effectively taking some of the steam steam out of the economy. But um, it's not just financial stocks uh, that have uh, fallen on tough times. Danny, I hear that uh, one of one of uh, Richard Branson's projects is is also on the rocks. Is that right? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Virgin Orbit is one of those desperately looking for funds. And there'd been a lot of talk, maybe it would find someone, this Texas billionaire who was potentially going to put some money into it. But it seems that that has not come to pass. And and what's happened is um, Virgin Orbit is now in Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Um, The SEC filings uh, revealed that it had revenues of just over 33 million 
over the last year versus a loss of almost $200 million, which just goes to show how expensive it is to try and create this kind of cutting edge technology and how expensive it is when, you know, space is involved. For years, it was the provision only of governments. But over the last sort of 10, 20 years, there have been some some high profile um, and incredibly well healed uh, private investors who have come into this space, pardon the pun. Of course, Elon Musk is in there with his project SpaceX and uh, Richard Branson with Virgin Orbit. It's all about launching satellites. And it was trying to raise more money uh, in January. And that is when it had an issue with the satellite launch in the UK. It blamed an anomaly there, but clearly that put a huge amount of pressure on the business and on its ability to to bring in more cash and to you know secure further business to take it onwards. It's put 33 satellites into orbit in total, which when you consider that um, Elon Musk's SpaceX at one point last year um, managed to put 143 satellites in, in one go, it just sort of shows the marketplace in which they're trying to compete. Last week, uh, Virgin Orbit laid off 85% of the 750 staff. Now we know that um, Virgin, uh, Richard Branson's company, has put in over £30 million just to keep the business ticking over while hopefully a buyer can be found. But the share price has absolutely tanked. So looking at Monday's closing price, it had a market value of $65 million. Now, compare that with two years ago, more than $3 billion. So uh, the question is, we know that space particularly satellites, this is expected just to continue to absolutely boom. If you think about how connected we all are, if you think about self-driving cars, you know, fridges which order their own refills of milk and all that sort of stuff, it relies on satellite technology. But when you've got SpaceX offering a place on its rockets, on its rideshare at $275,000, you sort of wonder whether or not Virgin Orbit has sort of missed its window. I mean, the idea is that it is incredibly agile. It can launch satellites really at sort of a a moment's notice and from wherever around the world that they have a runway long enough. So the technology, you know, potentially on paper, it looks like an absolutely brilliant business. But has it missed its window? As I say, is it now too late to to really capitalise on this sort of burgeoning market? I did notice that uh, they'd announced, NASA had announced the names of the astronauts that will go up to sort of orbit the moon. So maybe once we start talking about those sort of boldly going back towards the moon and that kind of thing, people's risk for investing in space will, you know, come back. But right at the moment, um, there are big questions about whether or not a buyer is going to be found for Virgin Orbit. Um, And there certainly hasn't been a buyer found for um, Cineworld's US and UK business lately. Yeah, that's that's right. Cineworld um, has been unable to find a buyer for um, its UK, UK, US, uh, its UK and its Irish 
um, businesses, but it does look like it might might have found a way out of its um, bankruptcy uh, proceedings, which it filed for in the US uh, last year. So Cineworld is the world's second largest cinema chain. And of course, the whole sector has fallen on on tough times as a result of um, streaming services like Netflix. But you know, even things that you might not think think are direct competitors, things like I guess um, you know TikTok, YouTube, you know Facebook, all of these various companies are vying for our attention uh, and, and our time. And um, you know that 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 also came you know that also kind of rose to prominence at a time when. The pandemic hit as well, of course, and that meant you know people weren't able to go out and, and, and go to cinemas. And just before the pandemic in 2018, Cineworld paid 5.8 billion dollars for the American uh, cinema chain Regal um, and loaded up on loads of debt in order to do that. So it was carrying um, you know a, a lot of debt into uh, you know a, a, a very uncertain environment anyway because of all the streaming, and then the pandemic hit. So. Um, you know, dot dot dot. You can kind of um, you know follow the crumbs and, and and find your way through to the through to the bankruptcy, really. Uh, but now it's you know it's actually found a way out of that. The company's effectively being handed over to it to its lenders. It's also raising some new cash as part of of the rescue deal, and that should help to to put its operations uh, on a more stable uh, financial footing. Um, so that I mean that, that there has been some some positive news in terms of corporate activity as well, Danny from 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 L'Oreal and particularly I guess for ESO. Yeah, and just before we sort of leave on the Cineworld stuff, you were talking about the likes of TikTok and that, and and you're absolutely right because it's not just our time that they're taking; it's also a huge amount of advertising. You know, if you think about how much money used to be spent on advertising in cinemas. And, and nowadays, you know, if you're an advertiser, it, it's sort of one of a mix of many things that people, advertisers can spend their cash on. And, and of course, you know, when you're thinking about right now with the cost of living crisis and how much people are willing to pay for a ticket, particularly if they can watch films in their own homes, literally on the same day as, as release sometimes as these films are heading into the cinema, then you know, Cineworld's going to have to try and keep its price low, but then how is it going to generate cash? Because if you think about, I mean, when was the last time you went to the cinema? Uh, quite a long time ago. It was Train Spotting 2, <laughs> which, which I very much enjoyed, but I went to a very bougie cinema in Bristol and I was absolutely flabbergasted because at the end, people stood up and started clapping. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> couldn't believe well, it. <laughs> my last experience was nothing like that. It was a big <laughs> multiplex uh, at Christmas time. I took the kids um, who are now teenagers, I hasten to add, and we went to see Violent Night um, and uh, a, a brilliant time was had by all. But the one thing that I said to them before we went to the cinema is, we're going to go out for dinner afterwards. We are not buying popcorn because once right. you factored in the price of a ticket – and then you go to the concessions, and that, of course, is where these businesses make their money. So how Cineworld is going to come out of it is going to be able to, you know, keep generating the kind of profits that it needs in order to really sort of pare away at that debt pile. It, it's going to be fascinating. Well, it's, it certainly doesn't sound like it can rely on the Houston dollar at the popcorn stand to, <laughs> to see it through, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely not. You've got a packet of polos in your pockets. That'll do. <laughs> 
but yeah, you were saying that there has been quite a lot of M&A activity. And yeah, um, Francis L'Oreal has agreed to a deal to buy Australian luxury brand Aesop um, for $2.5 billion. Um, have you ever used Aesop products? Uh, not myself. No, I have heard of them, though, which I was quite quite proud of. <laughs> <laughs> High-end cosmetics. Is it? Uh, yes, that's uh, yeah. why I've heard of it, you see. Yeah. <laughs> of course. A man with taste, Leif. You see. But uh, L'Oreal really is um, hoping now to really expand Aesop into China. So, And it's looking to expand its sort of high-end ranges as well. So it's got everything from Maybelline to Lancome. Um, so it's it sort of spans a whole range of pockets. And it also means that um, Natura, who L'Oreal has bought Aesop off, um, will have a bit of relief from shrinking margins. Now, Natura is the owner of Avon and the body shop as well. It's got quite a lot of debt. And, and it's quite interesting um, because L'Oreal actually sold the body shop to Natura in 2017. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of sort of um, keeping it in the family going on at the moment. But at this sort of time when we're talking about a cost of living crisis, we often talk about the lipstick effect where people are going for those sort of little luxuries. Uh, And I think, you know, when L'Oreal says that it sees massive growth potential, notably in China, I I don't think it's wrong. And um, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether or not other groups start to look towards cosmetics and that sort of luxury beauty labels. And, And we start to see a lot more deals in that sector. Um, a completely different sector, which is also attracting interest at the moment, is mining. So um, Glencore, of course, absolutely massive Swiss commodities giant, um, put in an unsolicited uh, bid for a Canadian group, Tech Resources. And I think it's fair to say that um, Tech Resources board sort of sent them away with a bucket of cold water poured over them and said, no, absolutely not. We are not interested at all. This would not be good for our shareholders. Um, So the clock is effectively now ticking on whether or not um, Glencore will be able to keep its proposal alive. You just looked at the share price and um, clearly Glencore shareholders thought that this was a really good idea because potentially what would happen is it would see Glencore sort of pulling itself into two. So on the one hand, keeping its sort of coal, thermal coal uh, business, and on the other hand, really focusing on copper. And we do know that there is expected to be a shortage of, of copper this year. So this really could be an incredibly valuable commodity. But uh, they've now got three weeks to convince enough tech investors to improve oppose the separation which tech is thinking to do it's quite complicated because on the one hand tech wants to pull its business into two and on the other hand glencore is talking about doing the same thing if it buys it um but uh, you know clearly it 
I think it's going to be really fascinating to see whether or not Glencore can persuade enough investors that maybe they want to to talk to Glencore a bit more, and also whether or not Glencore is willing to put its hand in its pocket and uh, and pull out a bit more cash, because clearly that is something that could sway some people's minds. Yeah, thanks for that, Danny. So that's the markets um, rounded up, I think. And we've now got a fund manager interview. And at a time when markets are pretty uncertain, we thought it would actually be quite a good idea to draft in a, a more cautious uh, fund manager to get their take on the outlook for the rest of the year. Now, Jasmine Yeo is a fund manager on the Ruffer Investment Trust, has a very defensive uh, approach to proceedings. Uh, it often has a large amount in bonds and gold and cash to, to mitigate stock market exposure. And Laura uh, spoke to Jasmine about why they've shored up their defensive assets and also why everyone's expectations that inflation is just going to fall away and stay low might be wide of the mark. So it's been a pretty rocky year so far. What's your outlook for the rest of the year ahead now we're a quarter of the way into it? Yeah, so I think the phrase here that, that comes to mind is there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. And you're absolutely right. I think the first couple of uh, months of this year uh, definitely are captured within that. Um, obviously, it was quite a good start to the year for risk assets. We had falling energy prices uh, in Europe. China sort of ripped off their COVID band-aid. Uh, but all of that was kind of upset by the strong US data that we had uh, in February. And what that saw in March was investors then sort of had to, well, revise uh, their interest rate expectations uh, with a view that inflation was going to be stickier than they might uh, have liked. Then, of course, uh, we got SVB uh, followed by Credit Suisse. And I think what's interesting about all of those events um, is really the different interpretations of what that means by different asset classes. And what's interesting is you've got the main two asset classes, so bonds and equities, which are currently in a lot of disagreement. Uh, so you've got bonds, uh, which have gone up. So bond yields have gone down. We know that the price and the yield on bonds are inversely related. And that's saying that bond investors are happy to own uh, duration assets again because they think we could well be done on inflation and interest rate hikes because of what's happened over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and really what the bond market is telling us is the expectation ahead this year that there will be worse economic conditions, so a recession on the horizon, essentially. Um, but at the same time, you've got equities that are basically telling us that everything's okay, and they're really ignoring why interest rates might have to be cut later this year and are rather really just enjoying the idea that interest rates might not get as high as they might have expected uh, about a month ago. So we've seen the peak of interest rate pricing gone from about 5.7% all the way down uh, back to below 5% at about 49 um, And that's good for equities uh, in theory because it means that with a lower discount rate, then future cash flows are sort of worth uh, more today. So they're telling us very different things. And to our mind, um, that's quite difficult to be sustainable. So one of them is going to be proven wrong and the other right. I think our issue and the reason we're actually quite nervous uh, for the rest of this year is that whilst the equity market is pleased that interest rates might not have to get so high, um, they're sort of, as I said, ignoring the issue of why that might be. And really, I think it's unlikely that the Fed's going to be cutting interest rates uh, if the economy's not gotten worse. And so how, as fund managers, how do you decide which side of the coin you kind of agree with there? How do you decide which theory you're most aligned with and then construct your portfolio accordingly? 
So, uh, Rafa, we always think about the risk of loss of capital first. So for us, that's really the starting point. And it makes us quite different, I think, to a lot of our industry, where for many, the starting point for building a portfolio is looking at risk as opportunity. Uh, whereas at Ruffer, we're rather than return maximizers, we're trying to be regret minimizers. So always thinking about the dangers. Uh, so for us, uh, in this context, I think there is lots of evidence uh, that we're going to get a slowdown uh, later this year. Um, and the idea that the equity market um, has not really reflected any of that for us is a risk and is why we still have quite a low allocation uh, to risk assets and in particular equities at the moment. And so does that mean that you've got more in bonds or cash or gold or a bit of all of them? Uh, a bit of all of them, really. Um, so in terms of our, our current positioning, uh, we are definitely quite defensively positioned. Uh, so gold uh, is something that we've been adding to uh, this year. That's an asset class that will benefit if we do get uh, a fall in interest rates. It's also been benefiting over the last couple of weeks from from a weaker US dollar. Uh, in terms of you know, currencies, on that note, we've got quite a significant allocation to the Japanese yen. That's typically a currency that you see appreciate in times of market stress. So if we do get further falls in equity markets later this year, uh, we expect the Japanese yen to appreciate and that for, to be a, a helpful allocation in the portfolio. Uh, we've got about a third of the portfolio in cash and very short dated government bond instruments. Uh, that's interesting because you can now get a yield on those assets. So in many ways, you're you're paid to wait uh, for things to get better or for things to get a little bit more attractive, which is very different to the environment we've been in uh, for the previous sort of 10 to 12 years. Uh, and the final element, I guess, of that defensive positioning, given, given our view for this year, uh, is that we also have some unconventional protections uh, in the form of derivatives, which for us is a really important part of the portfolio uh, and what helped us to protect our clients' capital in a year like last year. And you touched on cash there, and obviously with interest rates rising, the cash rates that you can get out there for the average you know, investor and saver person on the street um, is much higher than it was. So is there still an argument for taking that extra, extra risk on the equity market if as a you know, personal saver you can make four, four and a half, maybe even five percent on cash yourself? Yeah, I think this concept and this question is one of the most important questions uh, for investors today. I think it's it's crucial. And that is, as we've talked about, we are now moving away from a world of zero interest rate policy or ZERP, if you want to use the jargon, if you've seen that written <laughs> anywhere, uh, where in theory, as you say, you can get four or 5% in the bank today. And that has huge ramifications for investors and asset prices and has been one of the drivers, I think, of, of the current volatility we've had. Because you've got to ask yourself, why own the same amount in risky assets if you can achieve the same return or your required return with a lot less risk? Um, and I think that really has set the stage um, for what we think could be a sort of global de-risking and move away from risky assets where people were forced to own more and more risk in portfolios following the financial crisis um, as interest rates went to zero and then yields were pushed down as you know people first moved into bonds, then bond-like equities, and really, really up and up the risk spectrum. Um, and that has now fundamentally changed. And 
I think the other thing is that, as you point out, we're really not being paid very much to take on risk today. So the equity risk premium, the additional return that is afforded to investors sort of over and above cash um, is at record lows. So at one point this year, for example, um, the US equity market was yielding less than a six month US government bond, which I think is pretty extraordinary. Um, and that's all coming at a time where we've got immense sort of cross currents and complicated dynamics uh, in, in the economy and markets and geopolitics. Um, so I think investors are absolutely right to question at this po point in time, is it worth the extra risk? But, you know, whilst that might be the case in the short term, there are a lot of challenges around owning cash. I think firstly, actually achieving that four or 5% uh, is quite difficult. Uh, as we all probably all know, the cash that in our, our current accounts is certainly not getting that interest rate. Um, plus, as we've all learnt uh, very abruptly over the last couple of weeks or been reminded of, should I say, there is counterparty risk in banks. Uh, and the money market fund offering in the UK is, is pretty limited. So whilst in the US, um, you can move your money from your current account in your bank into a fund which is much closer to central bank interest rates, um, that's really far less available and easy to do in, in Europe. Um, and the other thing, clearly, is we are still in an environment of, of pretty high inflation. So again, whilst in the short term, it might you might be better off in cash uh, than taking risk in assets if they have further to fall this year. Uh, over the long run, ultimately, I still think risk assets will be required to maintain capital uh, in real terms. Um, and then finally, you know, owning cash or moving, I should say, out of risk assets into cash, um, you've got to get two decisions right there when you get out uh, and also when you get back in. Uh, and as we all know, sort of timing markets can be incredibly difficult. Um, so really investors need to to take a view as to whether they want to take on that responsibility themselves or potentially outsource. And so you kind of talked there about at the top about how unpredictable markets have been and how there's been a lot of stuff that has happened so far this year. So if we think back over the past year, that's been, you know, the scale of interest rate rises, the extent of inflation or moves made by the government, all of those things are just unpredictable factors that you can't hope to get right every single time. So as a fund manager, how do you navigate that and how do you try to predict things that are often unpredictable? Yeah, I think, um, you know, lots of the things you've pointed out um, to our minds is a sign that we're sort of we're currently in or going through regime change in financial markets. As you say, uh, higher inflation, interest rates, we've had political and fiscal policy volatility, uh, geopolitics. I think the world we're living in, uh, you know, this really is what regime change looks like day to day. Um, and I think that's important because in the new regime, arguably the principles of the last sort of 30, 40 years are, are not going to hold. And Primarily, I would look at the correlation between asset classes, so between bonds and equities. So something we do as a fund manager is always challenge market certainties, and we really aim to identify uh, such regime changes. Um, you know, one example of that is thinking about the relationship between those two uh, core asset classes. You know, 2022 uh, was a real flavor of this when we saw bonds and equities falling together. You know, Our view is that that's going to be uh, potentially a feature of this new regime and there's more of that to come rather than that having been a one-off we can sort of all return to the to the playbook of old um, as I mentioned earlier Ruffo as a fund manager always thinking about dangers first and foremost looking to preserve capital is really at the heart of what we do 
and that drives us to think about risk uh, before opportunity. Um, so looking at market certainties, identifying those regime changes. Um, we've been worried about this type of environment for quite some time, uh, really since after the financial crisis. And what that's meant is we've spent you know, a long time looking at and building solutions uh, to help us navigate this different kind of market regime. I think what's going to be important in that sense is being as flexible as possible and being very active. And one way we've sort of expanded our flexibility uh, as an investment manager is by being able to own uh, different types of asset classes. So I mentioned derivatives earlier. That's something we've been using in the portfolio for the last sort of five or, or six years. Um, they're complex instruments. They're frustrating because you have to pay to own that protection rather than be paid to wait. Um, but ultimately, it's what's helped us to drive positive returns through periods like 2022 and also Q1 of, of 2020. And when we circle back to that kind of cash versus equity debate, obviously, you guys haven't sold out of all of your equity holdings. So you still believe that there is some merit in some areas of the equity market. Um, what areas are you finding interesting and um, what kind of characteristics are you looking for when you're hunting for stocks to hold? Yeah, it's a really important point. You know, we don't even at our most sort of defensive or, or nervous with markets um, will always have something in risk assets uh, and slightly as sort of an extension to your previous question. I think markets are inherently uncertain. You can't predict the view, predict the future. Whilst we may have a, a strong view, um, for example, about the rest of this year, we always think it's important to have a balance of different assets in the portfolio. So both defensive and protective positions and also some opportunistic ones too. Um, you know, what that looks like at the moment, I think one area we're particularly interested in and uh, sort of the, the key theme within that small equity exposure that we do have is around energy and commodities. I think helpful both in the short term, because if we have to wait a few more months for these risks that we see to play out, perhaps the, the world economy can sort of hold on and there is a little bit more runway left particularly if we continue to see uh, China reopening and we are seeing that uh, become a reality in the data, then I think commodities should be a, a beneficiary of that. In the longer term, I think it's an interesting allocation more structurally too, because for years we've seen huge undersupply uh, in these markets. Uh, a lot of investors uh, have shunned commodity and energy stocks through the ESG lens. And whilst clearly ESG is extremely important and is absolutely something we also consider, I would argue that a lot of commodities, the likes of uh, copper, for example, um, and other base metals will be really important in helping us go on this energy transition. And given there's been such huge underfunding and underinvestment, supply is very tight. So as and when that demand comes through, whether it's in the short term from China or, or longer term through the energy transition, uh, then prices uh, of those metals and clearly the companies stand to benefit. And we've talked a lot about kind of some of the concerns for the year ahead, but are there areas of optimism for investors? If we wanted to leave people on a more positive note, what are the areas of optimism out there? Sure. So, uh, you know, we are very often accused of um, sort of leaving people with a, a rather doubtful view of the world. But that's our job, really, <laughs> is investors looking to to protect our clients' capital. And I would say at the moment, you know, as I've talked about, we are very nervous. But you know, in times of of crisis and hopefully is you know, many funds and Ruffer have demonstrated over the years uh, is that clearly leads to opportunity. So I think if investors can hold on to capital uh, through the next couple of months for the rest of this year, 
if and when we do get a further leg down in, in asset prices, um, you know, particularly if that's centered around the equity market, then if you have that capital to redeploy, there's going to be lots of interesting opportunities on, on the other side of that. So our focus at the moment is definitely on return of capital rather than return on capital. Um, within that, though, I think one area you know, and something we've got exposure to in the portfolio that I think is an opportunity in the short term and where there's protection to be found is uh, in exposure to rising borrowing costs. So what do I mean by that? I guess in the good times, uh, investors don't typically sort of distinguish much between lending to to good or to bad companies. Uh, so what I mean by that is they don't demand too much additional interest from corporates who perhaps have less good balance sheets. Uh, but in bad times, and perhaps as we're starting to witness, investors start to care uh, quite a lot. All of a sudden, they want to earn more for lending to these less healthy companies. Um, however, unusually, I would say at the moment, given the risks we're currently experiencing, um, that hasn't really yet been reflected in these borrowing costs. And so shorting the debt or getting exposure to that of less good companies or indeed a group of them, so things like a credit index, can make a very nice hedge against financial market stress. And we think could well work better than bonds um, if we do get this correction later this year. Um, another area I think is interesting alongside commodities that I mentioned is getting exposure to inflation protection, which is currently quite attractively priced because despite the fact that we're currently experiencing still very high levels of inflation, uh, the view of the market and the consensus view is that we'll go back to a low stable environment of 2% inflation. When we look at the facts and the world around us, we think that is vanishingly likely. And so you're able today to pick up protection against that very different environment at some reasonable prices today. So things like inflation linked government bonds, for example. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really interesting um, and we'll get you on again next year and we can hopefully have more sources of optimism then. So Laura talking to Jasmine Yeo from Ruffer and let's end with more bad news late. The biggest fall in house prices since 2009. Yeah, bad, bad news. Not bad news if you're trying to buy a house, I suppose. Let's put a positive spin on it, shall we? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so yeah, so yeah, let's let's end positively. So the uh, the biggest for, fastest rate since two thousand and nine. So you know the average property has fallen uh, just a, a, over three percent in the year to March, uh, and that leaves it around four point six percent below the most recent peak in in August. So you know it, it is only really a, a, a moderation. And if you put this in a bit better perspective, the average house price is now still twenty percent higher than it was. Um, at, you know, just before the pandemic, basically. Um, so we're really kind of seeing, you know, some froth, I, I think, basically blow, blown off the market. Um, uh, but but obviously, kind of, you know, the the you know, prices are still very high, um, you know, relative to wages. And that's, that's kind of, you know, obviously a problem in terms of affordability, which, you know, there, there's, there are new problems for affordability as well in terms of inflationary pressures. And obviously, interest rate rises, which have pushed up mortgage rates and, you know, which are, you know, uh, in large part responsible for, um, you know, a, a, a slowing a slowing housing market. So, you know, unemployment levels at, at the moment are still really, really low. And that's 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 positive for the housing market. But it's quite interesting if you look at what the Office for Budget Responsibility thinks. And that's the kind of government watchdog that looks at the, the, the budget and does all the numbers for that. They actually think that the big fall that we're going to see in house prices is actually in 2024. 
so their projections say we're, we're, they, they think that we're going to get one percent for uh, this year, and they think up you know somewhere around six percent in twenty twenty four. So they actually actually think the kind of problems in the housing market are a, a, bit, a bit further ahead of us, and that, that that may make some sense because interest rates obviously take a, a while to feed through into into the real economy. But you know, I think with any of these forecasts, because we've had that big shift in interest rates, it's all still feeding through into the real economy. Actually, economic forecasts are, uh, are particularly sort of precarious uh, at, at at the moment. But you know, I think you know it's interesting also to kind of consider that you know if Sylvan Tenrero is is correct, um, the MP, MPC member who thinks that that. Basically, the the Bank of England needs to to cut interest rates sooner and faster uh, than is currently currently projected. If, if she actually proves to be be correct, then that actually would again be positive for the, the housing market. We could all, we could be off to the races again with, with the housing market. We've also got an election around the corner, haven't we, Danny? <laughs> and you know, um, pol- politicians have shown that they're willing to to meddle in the housing market before proper, you know, kind of you know, help to buy stamp, stamp duty, duty holidays, etc., etc. Yeah. Et yeah. So you know, if you're coming around to an election. You know, get, get that feel-good factor of your house price going up. Um, you know, as 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 as, as sort of vacuous as it is, that, that you know that that puts a smile on people's face. And you know, as you can see that happening as we as as we head into an election as well. So the, the it might not be an entirely hard landing for the housing market. But of course, you know, a lot of people have not experienced interest rates being anything other than ultra low. So if you bought in the last decade. What's going on at the moment will be a real shock to you. And I know that, you know, we talk about the facts that, that banks do these stress tests to see whether or not if interest rates were to rise two, three, four, five percent, you would still be able to pay for your mortgage. But that's all very well on paper. But when you actually have to come to do that to find, you know, an extra six, eight hundred quid a lot of people are just really going to struggle. And I think, you know, potentially we could see a situation where an awful lot of people are trying to sell houses at a time, uh, you know, when they've not been able to buy a house of, of a suitably low level in order to continue to make those mortgage payments. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what politicians might be able to come up with um, as we head towards a general election. Fascinating times. Yes, indeed. Indeed, they are. So, yeah, quite a lot of ground covered today, I think, Danny. I think that's it for this episode. Now, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you never you never miss an episode. I'll be here with Laura next week. So until then, thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.